0: Welcome to the Minerals and Royalties Podcast, the home of CEOs and investors in the minerals and royalties space. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Matt Weischeck, managing member of Par City Holdings, a small minerals and royalties aggregator focused in Appalachia. During the episode, Matt talks about some of the advantages smaller funds like Parsity Holdings enjoy in the mineral space, reasons why his team is bullish on Appalachia Gas, and why futures pricing for gas is starting to look up amidst COVID-19 and the oil price war. I hope you enjoy. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Happy to be here and uh, appreciate the opportunity.
0: No, for sure. So, you know, as you know, with these episodes, we always like to start with a personal background uh, just to give some context. And then we can go a little bit further into your company and, and some of the trends you're seeing in the space. But, you know, start out with where you grew up, where you went to school, your career track, and how you got into the mineral space.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in a small town outside of Pittsburgh, and I went to college in a small school outside of the city as well, called Washington and Jefferson. While I was at Washington and Jefferson, I did an internship with some alumni who had a law firm, and they also had a small land services company, and they also had a mineral brokerage firm all under one roof. And I started as, a, as an intern at the law firm and got more involved with the mineral space there. And I was working late one night, and one of the principals there was appreciative of me staying late to finish up, I think, a mailing at the time. I stuff stuffing envelopes. And he gave me a lead on an HPP deal, some folks that owned about 500 acres in Washington County. And he said, go out and try to get this deal done. And I'd never bought minerals before. And so that was my first leap into it. And it, it worked out. It was a great deal for both parties. We got the deal done. The Landowners were happy. The principals were happy. And that's how I really got started. From there, we did some leasing on behalf of Rice Energy at the time, a predecessor and in interest to EQT now. and. I worked with those guys up and through my graduation of undergrad in in 2015. And then I went on to law school at Duquesne University in downtown Pittsburgh, stayed on with these guys for about a year. And at that time, San Jacinto Minerals was getting launched and getting started. And I was introduced to those guys, Jeff Scott and Nick Ryland, through my previous employer. And I started doing a lot more deals directly with Jeff and Nick. And in the middle of 2016, I decided to leave, go out on my own, open my own mineral brokerage, did a lot more work with the San Jacinto guys. And once I graduated law school in 2018, I went to work directly in-house for San Jacinto as their general counsel and acquisitions manager, overseeing all of the Pennsylvania acquisitions from 2018 through October of 2019, uh, when I recently left and and started this venture.
0: So interesting, um, you you have a legal background and you were the GC for San Jacinto and, and you, you kind of cut your teeth in a law firm. Can you speak to why the skill sets of a lawyer are applicable to the minerals game? In, in the episodes we've done up to date, we've had finance guys, land guys, geologists. Uh, we haven't had anyone from the legal background. And so I'm, I'm really curious if you can speak to that. Because it's it's an important part of the space, and if you can kind of walk through where the legal side kind of plays in, right?
1: Yeah, I I think I think it definitely has a, an interesting place, as as you suggest. I mean, I think at at the core, you know, when you're buying minerals, you are purchasing an interest in real property, right? So there are contracts, there are negotiations, and there, and legal documents that have to be prepared and recorded, et cetera. So I think in in that sense, the legal aspect comes into play with negotiating the deal and and making sure that the deal that's negotiated, whether orally or verbally, is memorialized appropriately uh, in a a legal document. And then getting that accurate, getting the deed accurate, making sure the conveyance is appropriate, you're, you're, you're buying the strata, the asset, the production, et cetera, that you intend to buy and making sure that's all done correctly. But also, you know, a lot of folks, at least in my experience, seem to have legal representation on the other end when you're negotiating these deals. So I think it's it's oftentimes beneficial and it helps expedite getting deals done when you can deal directly attorney to attorney.
0: Interesting. And Par City Holdings, your new shop, it's smaller in size, but San Jacinto is quite large and it put quite a bit of money to work over the years being backed by Lime Rock. Can you speak to the volume of deals and the money you guys put to work in Appalachia when you were working with them? And then the strategy of Par City, I think the reason I'm kind of Spelling that out is that you have a unique background and that you're kind of working for in the context of minerals you know the, the the large independent or the major now at the small startup junior right and and that difference uh, in, in a, a short span of being active in the space can equip you with with unique insights and and how to build Parcity going forward right
1: absolutely um, let me just first
0: and foremost say I'm very
1: appreciative of, of my time at, at San Jacinto and working with with Jeff and Nick and, and the rest of the team there. They uh, certainly helped me grow a lot personally, professionally, and, and still uh, are very important mentors to me. So I'm very appreciative for that. And, and as you suggest, I got to see how a mineral shop at that level operates. And then again, I'm doing it on a much smaller level. So at my time at San Jacinto, we put to work about $40 million in Pennsylvania uh, under my direction. And we spent some more capital in West Virginia as well. We had a different gentleman who Oversaw those acquisitions. In, in addition to that, forty plus million, we also participated along with Lime Rock Partners in a one percent override from Range Resources that that we purchased. Um, that was a three hundred million dollar deal. In aggregate, San Jacinto participated a, a small percentage of that. So a lot of capital was put to work here at Par City. You know, we 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 targeted a one million dollar raise, um, and we came up short of that, but. It's obviously a very drastic difference, and it impacts our go-to-market strategy. You know, when you're, when you're trying to place that much capital, I, I think it's particularly when you're buying undeveloped assets like San Jacinto is largely, and was, and Park City is, when you're trying to place that much capital, you're almost forced to do one of two things to place it. You either have to overpay for prime assets that are close to development, or you have to buy some assets that are further out. development and i think that that's one of the inherent conundrums between private equity capital and mineral shops that buy largely undeveloped acreage because you have to put all this capital to work and meet these hurdles and metrics and return profiles on this specified timeline but the the timing of development inevitably gets delayed because again if you're not overpaying for prime assets close to development you're forced to, to buy assets that are further away from the drill bit. And I think that's one of the benefits that we enjoy at par city is that in trying to place less than a million dollars in aggregate for this first fund, we have the the luxury to be patient and, and disciplined and to cherry pick the deals that have the very best return profiles for our investors. And while it hasn't happened yet, heaven forbid, if we would go a month or two or even three months without placing any capital, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Whereas at San Jacinto, you know, I was, my goal was to place about $2 million a month. So it's a much different strategy uh, as far as that's concerned.
0: No, it, and so it's interesting, right? As we record this, it's, it's early April 2020, you got COVID-19, you have the price war, all sorts of uh, interesting dynamics that have, uh, create unique opportunities in the mineral space. But what it's created, and I think minerals is no different than any other industry in the world at this current moment is uncertainty and certainly at a high level and what that translate to the minerals buyer is i can't really put any value on undeveloped acreage right now um i don't know if a permit if a permit's been filed i don't really know if that means anything if you know a well has been drilled but not completed yet you know referred to as a duck does that is that going to get you know just placed on hold you know rig activity being laid down capex budgets being slashed you know who's going to survive and and not go bankrupt, like there's all these uncertainties. And as a result, everyone says, okay, in the in the interim, we're PDP buyers, we're gonna buy cash flow on, on produ- producing minerals. Now, it's really difficult to put large amounts of institutional capital to work on just PDP, right? Um, we've talked about it with, with others in some of the other episodes. And so one of the interesting things, we'll see how this plays out is you know, have these teams and it's easier to put larger amounts of money to work for undeveloped stuff, because there's more of it versus the producing assets, and you know to be able to justify how you put value on these undeveloped assets, you need these large, robust technical teams and all sorts of data sources and investments in technology. And everyone's trying to skin the cat a different way to feel like they're getting ahead um, just a bit to get that edge on the buying side. PDP is very much a cash flow metric-driven valuation. And you don't need all the technical resources. So what happens in the next one to three years if low oil prices like this, you know, persist and development of, you know, undeveloped stuff slows? Does the mineral space become a PDP buying space and do team these larger teams go away? Do they consolidate? Or is there a reinvention of the approach? And you know, we just see minerals companies doing things a bit differently in order to deploy that capital. It'll be interesting to see, but you know, like you had mentioned a smaller shop, you don't have some of those pressures. And you also, if you make an investment um, on some riskier stuff and, and you miss, it's not as costly. And so you have a little bit more flexibility to maybe step up the risk curve. Can you talk a little bit about how you're even in this environment willing to buy some undeveloped stuff um, and, you know, how that matches the, the risk profile of your investors?
1: Absolutely. And and I, you make a lot of great points, Tim, and I agree with, with all of them. And I just want to touch on a couple of them before answering that question. I think that, you know, as you suggest, a lot of groups that are still active right now are kind of turning at least in the interim to, to PDP buyers to add some yield and, and straying away from the undeveloped. I think that what we will see if we're not already seeing it for these larger shops that have been buying undeveloped assets for so long now is that you know, you you get to a point where you're too big to sell to anybody except a public, or if you're too big for that, you you don't have sufficient cash flow to go public yourself. So you kind of get stuck there. So I think, as you suggest, there's going to be some sort of transformation down the line. But you know, the the inherent conundrum there is how do you put a meaningful amount of money to work and, and having a successful exit? So so we think with the friends and family type round that we did that you know we have some advantages there i think that one of the reasons we like appalachia in general uh, to to back to your points is that despite rigs being laid down and operators cutting capex and opex with a slight exception of range resources who operates up here and they have a small foothold in louisiana all the operators that were buying under eqt range cnx for the most part are are pure appalachia operators so our philosophy is that despite downturns, despite commodity prices being depressed, you know, these operators don't have another play to devote CapEx and OpEx to. So if we continue to disciplinally purchase core geology under these operators, we'll still get developed because, again, they don't have an alternative. Uh, play to go to our philosophy, though, is to purchase these undeveloped assets that are as de-risked as possible. And what I mean by that is, you know, at a minimum for us to make a an acquisition, we have to have a pad either being built currently or already built with active permits on it. And on the flip side, obviously, we're trying to buy as close to production as possible, so we prefer to buy ducks or wells that were just completed but not yet turned in line, so that we can get that flush production. Because you know, when you're buying PDP as you suggest it is a financial equation at that point the decline curves are relatively predictable you you know that absent commodity price swings and depressions and upticks it's it's pretty predictable what that cash flow will be at at your certain discount whether that's 10% 12% what we're trying to do is is pursue a higher return in the 20 plus range but our, our short-term IRRs are compromised in the sense that we might buy an asset that has ducks or that's or currently being drilled. We might sit on that for a year before we see any cash flow. But, you know, with risk oftentimes comes reward, and and we get that flush production, and, and we can see those 20-plus percent returns. So, again, what we're trying to do is, while it is inherently more risky to buy this undeveloped acreage, just de-risk it as much as possible. And because at the end of the day, we're all at the mercy of the operator. We're all at the mercy of commodity price. Uh, whether you're buying PDP or undeveloped. So, but we are trying to de-risk it as much as possible.
0: On the back of your comment, just sidestepping here, let's uh, educate some of the investors listening that aren't in the space yet and aren't familiar with the return profiles of different types of assets and they don't really know they have to pull up google and and double check what you mean by pdp and ducks and 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 all the terminology pad drilling you you mentioned you know you guys are are going de-risk undeveloped should be coming into cash flow in the next year or so and you're seeking returns of around 20 percent can you just kind of walk through the spectrum i know every asset's different because of the operator because of the basin there's a variety of factors but what are the general return parameters for Something that is producing already and has a long life of you know reserves and and slow decline, yeah, and then kind of stepping up the risk curve from there, and just maybe throw uh, minerals into to three or four different buckets, and then the associated risk profile. If you understand what I'm getting at, yeah. You know, so when investors are, are looking at stuff, they can you know tie the financial speak to the oil and gas and minerals terminology that we're referring to throughout the episode.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the most common that we see is, you know, starting with with PDP, which, which is proven developed producing. So you have these assets that have been in production. Uh, Typically, I think with PDP buyers, the sweet spot is to buy, you know, once you're past that initial uh, significant decline, you know, up here in in Appalachia, that's probably you want to be at the, at the, at a minimum, past the, the 24 month mark uh, of production so you already passed that big initial decline and you know what we're seeing in the market is buyers today trying to buy at an 8% discount, a 10% discount, a 12% discount when when you're buying these assets and I think it, it makes sense if you think about it in the sense that it is a math equation at that point the declines are, are relatively predictable but on the flip side, you know, the mineral owner sees what they're getting monthly and you know, the deal has to make sense for both parties. And so I think the, the lower return is commensurate with the lack of risk in that you're already in production, you're getting cash flow from day one as an investor, but the landowner also sees, you know, okay, I'm making $1,000 a month, for example, and, and you're offering me 45000 You know, I can easily do that math equation and see how long or how much I'm leaving on the table or lack thereof. On the flip side, if you're just buying purely undeveloped acreage with no permits, no line of sight, typically your price point can be, you know, much lower, opening the door to a much higher potential return, you know, maybe in the 30, 40% overall, but but it's it's your IRR because you might sit on that asset for three, four, five, six plus years before you see any cash flow from it. What we're trying to do is buy acreage that is undeveloped in nature, but it's it's close to cash flow. So our desired return profile is, is something that's going to be cash flowing within a year, exactly as you said, Tim. And, and to us, we're looking at assets that have a minimum of you know, 20 25% returns on the IRR level. And we also look at it in a five-year purview. So our philosophy is to, to have this fund aggregate these assets, cash flow them all until the five-year period, whether that means you know, every asset was cash flowing for five years. Some were cash flowing for four, three, et cetera. We we want to sell at month sixty is the plan, and, and we believe we'll have a substantial, if not all, of our initial capital back at that five-year period, and and then be able to exit. You know, to a PDP buyer for an attractive multiple at that time. I,
0: I... Let, on the back of the, that final comment on exiting, you know, once you start to hit cash flow, one of the advantages, and I'll just kind of take a step back and and explain the m or exit optionality that really exists in the market right now you know there are a lot of family offices and high net worth individuals you mentioned you grew up and cut your teeth in a, in a law firm there's a lot historically been a lot of shops like that doing lower level capital deployment call it a million bucks up to five million bucks or even lower in the mineral space over the last few decades right kind of personal house accounts you buy and you hold it in the perpetuity and and so What I'm getting at is there's a lot of players at that level and depending on what their risk appetite is, if you're aggregating assets and in a small amount of capital deployment like that, you're going to have a lot of potential buyers. And then when you start going up and you start getting dedicated funds of five, 10, 15, 25 million, which is kind of the next tier we typically see there, there are still quite a few buyers, but the pool gets a little bit smaller. And then now when you start, Packaging up 25 and 50 million dollar packages, the buyers are private equity backed guys and some of the larger buyers. And so it gets even smaller. And now, when you start building 100, 200, you know, 500 million dollar portfolios, do you go public? Do you consolidate and merge? Do, you know, what do you do to exit? That's the biggest question mark in the space right now. And so, what you enjoy, even though you know your, your fund is only a million bucks, what you enjoy is a lot of flexibility and optionality. You can sit on it a little bit. You can flip it along the way with the market timings there. And, and that's helpful. And so there, we know a lot of clients who, who say, you know what? We might only have a $5 million fund. Let's just say on an exit, you can get a 2X, a 3X return. We're going to flip the assets along the way and get a 1X or 1.5X return. So we're okay with that lower multiple, but we're going to deploy it uh, and sell it three times in the same period it would take you to build up a you know, $15 million or $20 million war chest, and we feel it's easier to exit it. And then instead of getting a 2, 3x return, you get a 1.5x return three times. And so that's kind of, I imagine what you guys kind of have in mind and, and how the model really works at the bottom end of the market. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think generally speaking, you know, the smaller you are, the, the more flexibility and optionality you have. You know, as you said, that the bigger you get, the pool of buyers or potential buyers gets gets much smaller than you get to the do we go public, can we go public uh, dilemma. That's that's a problem I don't want to have anytime soon. You know, at this level, we do have the optionality. You know, like you said, we could flip it multiple times and, and have the net effect be the same as a, a $10, $15, dollars uh, one-time run. Uh, I think the way we're looking at it now is, and of course, a lot could change over the next 50, 60 months, but we want to hold these assets. And then, you know, at at that point, we'll kind of see what the percentage of our portfolio that actually is cash flowing versus what might still be undeveloped, how long these assets have been cash flowing individually. And we kind of have the flexibility at that point to do a number of things. We could sell the entire package to a PDP buyer who values that PDP because there isn't much upside left, at least at this strata. Uh, Alternatively, we could go to a bigger shop, who is traditionally in the undeveloped space but they want to add some yield and we might have enough yield with enough upside for them to to make an offer that makes sense and still put deploy a significant amount of capital for them we could always parse the assets up uh sell the pdp to one group sell the completely undeveloped to another but alternatively and and one of the things we talk to our investors a lot about is you know if we do this how we anticipate and we recoup a, six, a substantial amount of our capital if not all of our capital in cash flow and the assets out we might not even have to exit not that we want to necessarily hold on hold on to it in perpetuity but if you can make your money back and then some within that 5 year period or, or sooner it, you know it might be appealing to just continue to collect monthly distributions at that point so you know as you said i completely agree with there's a lot more optionality the smaller you are but again the rub there is you know you, for some of these larger institutional capital groups and investors, maybe at this level, it's just not worth their while. But um, again, it's much more flexible when I think that there's still plenty of money to be made for investors, even, even at this size.
0: Matt, I appreciate those, those comments. Um, uh, another thing that I wanna touch upon is why gas and why Appalachian gas? Why not the Haynesville? Why not Barnett? Why not Piance Basin or, or any other gassy areas in the country? Why Appalachia? Is it just kind of, that's where you grew up, that's where you know you got your experience, and, and it's just the track you went down? Is there is there an angle that you like about it that makes you bullish on, on Appalachia Gas in particular? Yes,
1: yeah, so this is going to be a very long-winded answer, but I think, so why gas, first and foremost, is that, when I, we get asked this question all the time from investors, potential investors, et cetera, and, and I always think about my PDP friends who are largely or totally agnostic to where they buy, because... You know, when you're trying to make a 10% return, let's say on the PDP side of things or a 20 plus return on our side, you know, that 20% return is the same, whether it comes from an oil producing property or a gas producing property. But it seems that gas in general is, is largely less appealing to the larger and institutional capital. So with that, there's a lot less competition uh, in gas, particularly here in Appalachia. So we think at the end of the day, there's plenty of money to be made for our investors here in gas specifically in Appalachia. I think the biggest reason why we're here is, as you said, you know, I've been here my whole life. This is what we know, you know, instead of going to a a different basin and trying to have, figure it out and have that prolonged learning curve, we'd prefer to just stay here and make hay as long as it makes sense to. I I think also, you know, there's different studies on this, but the two that we kind of look at most closely suggest that Appalachia in general has the lowest break-even cost for operators in pure dry gas plays in the country. Southwestern Appalachia being second to northeastern Appalachia, northeastern PA, and also as I mentioned earlier, you know the operators that we're buying under are for the most part purely Appalachian operators. So we have that confidence that our acreage is going to get developed. And lastly, particularly as it relates to southwestern Appalachia, the, the due diligence in title is is a lot trickier than the typical section township range title uh, in other plays. There's a lot of historic reservations and severances and conveyances. So we've been doing this for seven years. We're used to that. We've built up a nice portfolio of, of title records, due diligence records, if you will. But that extra level of complexity also plays nicely and adds a little bit of a Extra barrier to entry for competition. So, for all of those reasons, we think that you know Appalachia is a perfect storm for us. It's what we know. It's it's who we know. And ultimately, there's there's still plenty of meat left on the bone, a lot of sandbox left, and, and a lot of money for our investors still to be made here. Listen,
0: I, I echo what you said 100 percent on the barrier to entry. I was going to say that if, if you didn't touch upon it, um, you know, the, just the title up there. You know, for any investors out there that like, I don't know if you would call it a dislocated market, but just opportunities where there's an arbitrage because it's hairier that that's what appalachian minerals are a hundred percent and it's just you look at any of the the firms that have been successful it's ones that have the guys and gals on the ground that have been doing it for a while and you build that repository of title records right anyone who has a past life doing leasehold work up there that that's the advantage very seldom do you kind of see new shops pop up that have zero experience going in appalachia because it's just it's too challenging and then from a data perspective when you look at all these incredible data resources and subscriptions and ai and all that stuff that's popped up they add the most value in texas and in other areas that have more transparent public records and everything and so it might be a little bit more tedious and a lot more work but when it comes down to, you know, as an investor getting your returns, the margins might be a bit larger in Appalachia, even if you're not putting the same scale capital work, right?
1: Absolutely. And I, you know, and and with that, I mean, I've had the pleasure of working with some of the most talented title people, probably in the country, you know, and and they always joke that if you can do title in Green County or in West Virginia, you you can do it anywhere. And I've never personally tried, and I have no desire to, to do title elsewhere at this point. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly adds that extra layer and um, it gives us a competitive advantage to be able to go out to market to these landowners and say, hey, this is what we think you own with some cursory, we'll close the transaction in 30 calendar days or less. I mean, that has a lot of weight, you know, as opposed to, you know, as you say, if a new group would come in and, and they need, you know, 60, 90 business days just to figure it out, you know, so that's that's one of the places that we're poised. And, you know, as you say, you know, particularly in Pennsylvania, which is the bulk of our focus area. Minerals and oil and gas aren't assessed here. So there aren't the public tax rolls to, to help decipher ownership. So again, it's, it's, it's certainly a little hairier and messier. But as you said, I think that's it's just commensurate with the opportunity here.
0: You know, one thing can you, it's your business to know the numbers. And so I'll deflect to you to, you know, say what gas prices are today and what they have been historically and just kind of walk through that story. But as a general rule of thumb, you know, for others listening out there, why is maybe buying Appalachia gas interesting today? I think in the dynamics of the supply-demand curve, Permian has been dominating capital, rig activity, et cetera, et cetera, for, for the last few years. And there's a lot of associated gas that comes along with the oil production in Permian. Now with the price war and you know, the drop in oil prices, rig activity is gonna slow in the Permian, thus meaning less wells are gonna get drilled, and less associated gas is going to come into the market. What does that mean? It lifts pressure off of the supply side of gas, which helps a gas basin like Appalachia. And now all of a sudden, you get a bit of an uplift on the futures market. We're not talking super robust, juicy gas prices by any means, but it looks a bit better. And there's been a shift, at least in the conversations I've been having, for more of an appetite, at least on producing gas. So can you, can you give a little bit of historical context where gas prices have been, where they're at the last few years, where they're at now? And just also, you know, kind of talk about how, you know, as a mineral buyer, landowners in Appalachia, they've kind of been feeling pain for a while. And so I, I think you can move a little bit quicker. The bid-ask spread isn't as wide and, and put, put some money to work and get deals done in Appalachia just because it's been tough for a while and now it's looking up, right?
1: absolutely I, I think that those are all great points and and you know to try to answer that question i mean i think historically you know back before the marcellus boom i mean you know gas prices were 10 12 14 dollars an mcf when we had this unconventional production because you know it just took so much longer to produce as much volume then naturally we have this this rush and all these operators come in and you know supply far outweighs demand and and we you know we see gas prices go down into the sub 2 you know $1 range back and i think it was 2014ish 2014 2015 and it has been kind of depressed ever since i mean we did we did see some spikes over the past winters you know typical seasonal spikes as we sit here today i think the spot for for may of of 2020 is in the 173 Range for MCF, um, but the biggest thing and in, in the, the biggest window of opportunity, exactly as you suggest, is is this this price war and these uh, rig laydowns in the Permian and the lack of associated gas, where we're seeing futures uh, as a result of that. For January today, it's at 290. February 2021 is at 286. March is at 274. So again, these aren't huge prices in the grand scheme of things, but relative to where things have been. And the reality is. Um, on the mineral side of things, we're not really seeing in the marketplace a drastic differential in purchase price between when gas was at three bucks or when gas was at two bucks. And maybe that's a matter of expectations on the seller's end and and what mineral buyers are willing to pay. Maybe that's a little bit of fault to the mineral buyers for not getting their price points down. I don't know. But the reality is we're, we're buying assets today. We're modeling them at the, you know, maybe 170, 160 figure. And so these futures while not that inspiring on a, on a grand scheme of things look a heck of a lot better than a buck 60 or buck 70 that we've seen over the past five six months here
0: yeah you know and as as they say in the mineral space you make your money when you buy um, and so if your cost basis is good then it's all upside and you had mentioned too your goal is to get a, a nice bump on your initial investment with the capital gains exit after five six years but if you don't you're still playing with profit because you hope to Make your investors' whole with with distributions over that period, so you know it's it's all it's all interesting. You know the other thing too, I, I'd like to point out, and and I again, I'm going to lean on you to kind of speak specifics, but I know at a high level, in the Northeast, when you have some really severe uh, seasonal events, you know snowstorms and stuff, you can get some massive spikes in gas prices that you know may not be something predictable to rely on. It may not be for extended periods of time, but, you know, when there's shortages for heating homes and everything, uh, that, that might be a unique advantage to, say, Barnett Gas or Gulf Coast or, or Haynesville. Now, granted, there's, there's other strategic reasons to buy gas there, you know, feedstock for LNG in the Gulf Coast, if you believe in, in being bullish long-term on LNG. But specifically staying to the Appalachia story, kind of talk to that seasonality part of the, part of the cycle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I think it was last winter. You know, we we did see some spikes up in the uh, you know the four forties on a couple of checks, and I think you know as a result of additional pipelines and if we can get some pipes to to the northeast and to New York specifically, I think that would help drastically because I think one of the biggest drivers for seasonality spikes here is for operators that can that can get their gas one way or another to these New York City or or New York quote unquote premium Markets that'll pay a premium for that because they have they have few alternatives and, and the demand is there. But as you said, there's also a demand to, to, to get the LNG out to the, to the Gulf Coast and and Shell's building you know a six billion dollar ethane cracker plant here as we speak. That you know that offers another avenue for some liquids and and such to get to get out of market here. I think, but I think generally we are kind of pipeline constrained still to this day up here as far as what we'll see in the future. So I think that for the most part gas prices particularly here in Appalachia are still a little depressed and i think there's ultimately only upside i mean of course we're depressed now with this coronavirus pandemic just you know just as oil is as well but i think once that lifts given where oil is today there's a lot more upside to gas. And, and I think personally, we're going to see $3 plus gas in, in 2021. And again, if we can get some more pipelines built here in the future, I, I think that's only beneficial for gas
0: prices. Well, listen, Matt, this has been great. I think we've touched on a lot of things we have in other episodes, particularly we haven't talked to an Appalachian folks focused player, So I, I appreciate you sharing your insights and in the story, any closing comments. And, you know, I always like to give you the floor to, share a message on behalf of Par city you know just kind of general messages about minerals and royalties faced to investors or about appalachia gas and why what, what the takeaway should be you know the the floor is yours to kind of tailor the message to to your liking but um i'll let you take it away
1: yeah thank you i would say just you know to to the industry folks in general i think that you know this is certainly not the first and certainly won't be the last downturn that we're in so just you know try to hang in there and find the opportunity In this, whatever that may be for you individually. Um, I think to potential investors relative to the oil and gas space in general, if you've been on the fence or if you've considered investing in the oil and gas space, the mineral space, I think this is a great time, particularly as it relates to Park City and and Appalachia in gas prices. I think this is an even more opportune time for a number of reasons. Uh, Just briefly, that there's not a lot of competition here. Seemingly now, the, the few institutionally backed groups up here are kind of taking a back seat to see what's gonna happen with this pandemic. And and again, I think that generally gas prices are on the rise, particularly here in Appalachia. And so if you've been on the
0: fence, if you considered it, uh, this might just be the time to take that leap. Awesome, well, Matt, thanks again. Uh, It's been a pleasure chatting with you and getting to know you over the last uh, few days. And we'll keep in touch as soon as we're all allowed to fly and, and have meetings again. I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Absolutely, thanks, Tim. I really appreciate you having me on. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in meeting Matt or any of the other executives in our network, then I encourage you to join us at our upcoming Northam Royalties Assembly in Houston and our private oil and gas investment assembly at the New York Stock Exchange later this year. For more information, please email me at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks and see you next time.